Muslims are quite trendy these days, aren't they? And, and that's an interesting thing, like trendy. Um, that's a kind of a, kind of a hot word right now because obviously trends, fads, phases, they come in and then they go. Um, that's quite telling. Muslim Muslims or Muslim culture or Islamic culture, I think one way of putting it is, is it now cool? Is it now happening? Is it something here to stay? You know, so these are just some questions to kind of throw up. And what does it mean, right? Yeah, what, what does it, it mean? What, is it, what are we talking about when we say Muslim culture? That's such a broad... That's, that's the next 10 episodes that's, that's done. That's the next episode yeah. done, right? And we could be here for hours. So I think with Muslim culture, it's... I wouldn't say culture is in... There is a Muslim culture, firstly. Um, I don't think there is one. I mean, there are different types of communities or people or uh, cultures, and they happen to be Muslim. Uh, and an understanding of Islam that they have infuses within and informs and shapes the way they practice their, you know, practice their kind of way of being. Um, I think when I say Muslim culture, I mean it very informally in reference to a global phenomenon and way of thinking that appears to stem from or is powered by a, a belief that Islamic countries or people of Muslim belief are doing lots of amazing, cool, insightful, interesting, advanced things right now that the world is finding a lot of interest in. It could be sports, could be in the world of commerce, in the world of tech, even academia and research. Muslims are contributing heavily. I just mentioned tech. Tech is one area, but also other parts, you know, sciences and so forth, um, political awareness and shrewdness. A lot of Muslim countries in recent times have distributed great shrewdness and acumen in navigating um, the world, especially after the war on terror um, era, which kind of arguably ended around 2015, 2016. I think that you know, the ISIS period was like a cut-off period. After ISIS, I think it's just kind of died down to some extent. I know there are still issues in the world, but I think there has been a lot of shrewdness going on. Um, also, just in terms of day-to-day -day culture, dress is a massive thing. Just growing up in London, you'll see, I think, even kind of what we consider to be Islamic attire, you know, or things like that, is becoming much more acceptable and mainstream. You can walk down any street in London and you can wear a thobe and no one would bat an eyelid because it's associated with, I'd say, the UAE or Dubai or the Gulf okay. and prosperity. So things that are just, just and even phrases, tell me if you agree, was that inshallah or al al alhamdulillah is everyone knows what that is. It's a good point. We'll come back to that. Uh, we wanted to keep this episode light, but we're gonna we're gonna go heavy on that one later. Yeah. But let, let's wind back a bit. I don't normally like talking about other people. Yeah. But I think if there's some good examples, yeah. let's, can you give some examples of what you mentioned? So you mentioned Islam being in the spotlight in a positive way. Yeah. So I think one way of that was Qatar and Qatar, the World the Cup. Qatar, the World Cup, even looking at just just Muslim start off with sports. If you look at the world of football, I mean, you know whether you're into football or not, but just, just look at Mo Salah of Liverpool, right? Everybody knows Mo Salah. Everybody accepts him to be a wonderful football player. Look at sports stars such as you know, MMA. Look at Khabib Nurmagomedov or Nur Muhammad Habib, as, 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 as you'd say. 
So Habib is an icon globally for people who are Muslim, but also non-Muslim or people who are just, uh, you know, appreciate sports and his way of life, the way he conducts himself, the discipline and the uh, dominance that he's displayed in his sport um, and, and, and throughout the way he conducts himself is admired by so many people. Um, when you're looking at even uh, politicians or people from the Muslim world, such as uh, you look at the so, some some of what I mean by that is if you look at some of the Gulf uh, princes, they're, they're on the shapes, map. They're on the map. And Whether it's happening. in a good way or a bad, or bad way, I think it's always I think it's always hard to be on the map in a good way yeah. as a politician. I've, but they're on the map yeah. and they're being they're being talked about, yeah. and it's kind of whether you love them or hate them. They're, they're here. They're it's there. a bit like that almost. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like you might not, you we might not agree with what you do, but they're there. If you know what I mean. And it's a bit like whereas I think ten, twenty years ago it was like we don't agree with you, we'll cancel you, and we don't want anything to do with you. But it's almost like well, it's just uncancelable now. Well, there were just countries you hadn't heard of. Yeah. Just like so many countries in Africa, for example. Yeah. You vaguely know they exist, like Central African Republic. Yeah. You know, Republic of Congo, Cameroon. Equatorial Guinea. When was the last time you heard of any of these countries? Like, unfortunately, um, it's the fact. Well, a lot of the Middle Eastern countries now, like Qatar, UAE, mm. Bahrain, they're kind of a bit more back on the map. Absolutely. For what? For tourism. Yeah. Uh, human rights abuses. Uh, the World Cup. It's all in there. Yeah, and even e even I'd say, you know, I think it's a it could be a global thing. Like you know how I think after, say, I think there's a I think you can actually call it a post Trump era. So when Donald Trump kind of became in 2016 became the US president uh, I think he was either riding on the wave of or ushered in a wave of identity politics where people kind of clamoured to express themselves as who they are culturally in terms of identity and I think he used identity as a way of uh, kind of creating pockets of votes so if you notice like a lot of the Trump era he used you know you know, a lot of the discourse surrounded by around women or uh, men or, you know, a certain race or Mexicans or Muslims. So he used categories or demographics to dictate or to design his policies. And that became quite globally, you know, globally, that surrounded globally. So you had a lot more identity politics. So you see Africa right now. So African, I'd say, expressionism or African culture has become even more prevalent now in the West. So you have Afrobeats, African music, African cuisine, African dress. Uh, so I think within that global thing, there's also a similar thing happening for Muslim or Arab or uh, South Asian even, you know, culture, um, which is again becoming more and more prevalent. Um, another example, we mentioned polit politics. We mentioned kind of the UAE and the Gulf with, the, with all the success stories uh, in terms of the World Cup, you know, in terms of just organizing such an amazing thing looking around um i'd say academia the uk you're seeing i know this is quite cosmetic you're seeing a muslim mayor you're seeing um, a muslim leader of the scottish uh, scottish national party uh, you're seeing a lot more um, muslims who are in positions of corporate power and authority or tech or, or the likewise in tech and they're quite open about it and clear about it and it's it's seen as quite a lot more normal i'd say than it was again 20 years ago 15 years ago that's a good point and i think it's interesting this idea of uh, muslim culture because it doesn't really exist 
um, ideologically. No. Like, uh, Islam is not a culture. No. It's a religion. Islam embraces culture. Like, historically, yeah. wherever Islam went, it was a way of being. Um, it takes a kind of quite a big part of someone's life, but actually, all the external monikers, like clothing, let's say buildings, for example, I think those are two easy aesthetic yeah. examples to take. Yeah are not really dictated by Islam. Uh, mm. There's a bare minimum. Mm. Clothing should cover your aura, so from your navel to your knee. Mm. For men and for women, everything apart from your your face, hands, and feet. Um, but that's a very bare minimum. Mm. Uh, like within that, if you were to go to Japan, mm. uh, what, what does a mosque need to have, for example? Mm. It just needs to have space for people to pray. A clear indication that it's a mosque, somewhere you can do the call for prayer. Does it need a dome? Does it need a minaret? You know, these are open questions. It's not clear cut, so the same with clothing. Does it need to look like a thobe? Well, it needs to be uh, it needs to be baggy enough to be modest, so it's not you know tight figure hugging. And other than that, it just needs to cover your aura. So, Muslim dress could be a kimono, could be yeah. uh, could be a short kameez, anything really uh, internationally. But I feel like now it's kind of flipped the other way, where instead of having we have Islam, Islam spreads to countries. Whatever culture these countries had now falls under Muslim culture, and then that's kind of solidified and codified mm. and then whatever's left we say well these countries are muslim this is their culture therefore this is muslim culture and then you might have you know people who aren't muslim now wearing a thobe and we like, oh it's part of muslim culture and mm. people saying things like inshallah mm. even though they have no real concept of what it means and it, it it's quite sad really that in many places the religion has been reduced to this like it's eid so i'm gonna wear my eid clothes my muslim clothes and it's like that's what the religion has been reduced to in many places where mm. people take actually the theological understanding don't really care about that anymore people are just focusing on the clothes the words the external monikers of faith it's become almost like a gimmick almost like just like, like a, yeah. a dress up kind of thing yeah do you find to some extent though when non-muslims are doing that i know you know you know we often hear of things like that's cultural appropriation that's wrong you know, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's inappropriate for non-Muslims, for example, to, to, to dress like Muslims and then say inshallah as if they're cool. Or do you think it's something that to some extent is a good dawah, it's something to encourage, it's something to celebrate in a healthy way, as that they're finding a level of access that we might not have? Yeah, it's a good question. Like, I think there's always pros and cons examples where it's good examples where it's you know very bad uh let's try and think of a few i can think of one example where it's very bad uh kebabs you know stalwarts of the of the muslim countries always on the on the diet for muslims but uh yeah some non-muslims opened up a kebab shop in central london that's okay that's that's not right. <laughs> yeah i was looking forward to going there every other item has pork in it Mm. How have they done that? Mm. They've cut costs. They've put pork in. Mm. They've ruined the kebab. That's it. That's not right. That's, that was the final straw for me. Yeah, that was unacceptable. No yeah. way, no way back from there. But there was a lot that you could argue was like that during Qatar and the World Cup. Yeah, uh, lots of you know British fans would have going out there. What was really interesting actually was hearing, obviously the backlash beforehand. What do you mean there's going to be a World Cup where you can't drink beer? Why am I going to go to the football if I can't drink beer? So a lot of people were saying things like that. And actually, you heard from a lot of people that went there, and they were like, you know what, you can still keep hydrated, still have water, there's loads of free drinks, you know, you have a non-alcoholic beer, so you still get that vibe that they want. I heard from one professor who said he went there with his sons, 
and his sons were absolutely loving it because they were like eight or 12 and yeah. they were walking around with a non-alcoholic beer just feeling like the biggest men in the world and he was like yeah he doesn't feel like hung over or bloated or anything he just has some soft drinks and actually i mean it's kind of obvious to muslims but it turned out to be such a uh you know non-issue in the end and and on that point even when you watch some of the reactions people were absolutely fine you know the fans that were there and they did an interview that was for looking back at the world yeah. cup not being stereotypical but the the type of sort you'd associate with being rowdy and hooliganish and into their beer and their booze and booziness they were the ones saying it's it was absolutely fine they loved it even though there was no alcohol they made themselves happy you know it was peaceful themselves. there was good weather yeah uh, it was just a nice place to be yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. um and then all of those people who maybe came from a very you know british background were then like buying thobes loving it saying salamu alaikum to everyone speaking you know those standard phrases you get as a tourist in a, in a muslim country and they were loving it is that cultural appropriation I think that's where it seems like actually it was really good dawah. And there you are. Yeah. People were like, oh, you know, we had all these impressions of Muslims in the Middle East and these desert countries, all these stereotypes we've thought about for years. And now we've actually, you know, got a completely different take on that. We've mm. seen what it's like in, in real life, the lived experience, as they say. I think also there was a, a good example with, you often see these really funny videos online. Uh, they're always like, Arab pranks mm. and there's just there's some hilarious stuff like um I think the one I saw recently was it was titled like this guy doesn't even have time to park his car so he's in the desert in his 4x4 he's rolling up to his friends he just like steps out of the car doesn't park it it just keeps rolling it stops 10 20 meters down the road and he just walks to his friends and I think seeing something like that is obviously insane but it's really ridiculous but it really opens up like a human element of people and you see this all the time. You see videos from Africa, from the Middle East, from you know the Far East, from America. I mean, quite a lot from America. But it actually open up these pockets uh, into other cultures and other parts of the world that you might not normally be mm. exposed to. And you, Social media has played a massive role then. Yeah, I think so. And you yeah. see so much that's just very human. It's not. It's not about someone's like identity politics or their ideology or. or it's just very normal things like people are eating, people are joking with their friends. Guys like to play pranks on each other. Uh, people like to dress up nicely. Uh, kids are always doing silly things. They're far too blunt. And you just see the same thing universally. And I think you've got a few subtitles. You've got a kid doing something funny halfway across the globe. Mm. Anyone can appreciate that. Absolutely. And, and now that you mentioned that, on that Qatar point, when you see, for example, I, I, I remember watching some stuff where you know, Rio Ferdinand, he was there you know, doing a lot of the you know, coverage uh, in the World Cup. I remember him dressing up in the thobe and wearing the kind of the, the Qatari outfit with the, with the head, head, head covering and you know, a very premium kind of sleek, almost like off black, dark blue thobe. It looked amazing. Um, and then the cream or off white head covering. And he's wearing all that. Then he went and has having, you know, kind of snacks with, a, with, with dates and coffee and things like that with, with Qataris. And he said he felt, he felt regal, he felt royal, he felt like a king. He felt uh, noble, you know, when he wore those clothes. So there's an association or an aura of nobility and dignity and uh, kind of, you know, perfection that came with the dress and the way of being. And that, when you unpack these kind of associations, which we, of course, just, you know, which we support, 
it's I think has two or three elements. I think to one extent it's I think everybody, and I say this, I think it's a it's a it's a feat of history. If you are, if you retain your cultural value within reason, and you focus on prosperity, development, success, economically, socially, and so forth, you will be respected. You might not be accepted, but you will be respected for your for how you are. And I see that in in the Qatar in the beginning, as you said, the backlash. But then they went there and they saw. These guys spent 250 billion on the World Cup, like the Russian World Cup. It was like 2.5 billion, and the Qatar just went like that. And this is like Qatar. This is like the tiniest, well, one of the smallest countries on earth, but it's pound for pound the richest country on earth. They're not playing around. But they're like, you're not drinking alcohol here. This is how we dress. This is how we be. You know, we'll treat you with utmost hospitality. And this is how we dress. This is how we act. And I think people were like, okay, this is how. They, Respect, you know, respect that. So I find like that understanding is something which I see as a phenomenon across all the Muslim main nations on earth. It's almost like the Muslim nations thought, let's focus on economic development and prosperity and technology and infrastructure and development and for human resources, let's focus on more western education alongside having a cultural religious social awareness of their kind of host nation so be understanding what it means to be turkish for slash muslim turkish for example or in the uae understanding what it means to be a muslim person from the middle east you know alongside studying you know speaking english for example as an access point so i see like a global way of thinking and that's again being respected more uh, in the west so, I mean, do you kind of see that too, or do you kind of... Yeah, I see what you mean. People are starting to recognise these countries as, as global players, and in good ways and bad ways. There's always a lot of criticism, often unfairly. Like yeah. you said, there's a big criticism of, well, are you going to be able to drink at the World Cup? And Iran a lot a lot deeper than that. There was a lot more criticism than that. But I think it comes down to, to what you said, like uh, the gentleman who's wearing his thobe, or having the coffees and the dates, he said he felt regal. Mm. And that comes back to, is it Muslim culture or Islamic culture? Like an Islamic aspect to dress. Like we said, it's very basic. It should cover your aura. But it's also mm. that it should be should be excellent. Everything Absolutely. you do in Islam should embody this idea of ihsan and doing everything with excellence. Or, you know, as the British saying goes, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing properly. Yeah. And I think that's a reason why it's good for Muslims who live in the West, like, is it worth them wearing a thobe or wearing a shawakamese if it's not what they've grown up wearing, if it's not what they wear every day? It's nothing wrong with that. But if they're used to wearing, you know, a suit and tie to go to work, then there's nothing wrong with that. As Muslims, they should keep doing that and do it with excellence. And in that way, Islam embraces culture. So whatever you're doing, do it with excellence. And now that you mentioned that, and I like the, that point, say the association of dress say in an Arab context, I'm sure in the South Asian context, with, with regality, with nobility, with excellence, and that having a parallel with the Islamic way of, of dress, of being excellence. I think that's a classic or clear example of how I think there is a greater confidence for Muslims to express their excellence across to everybody. And I'll explain how, how it was. So before, growing up as a, when I was a kid, if you'd wear a shalwar or something like that 
and dresses quite interesting. And you walked around Oxford Street. I don't think, and this is, you know, growing up in the early 2000s, or maybe in the 90s, but I don't think it would be seen to be... It, I, I, okay, I'm gonna, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think you would feel as comfortable wearing it. If you were to wear one now, you could wear it with pride. Not a single eye would turn and think, what's he wearing? And this is almost, it's a double-edged sword. It's, oh, oh, well, the Muslim world, they're all rich, oil money, loaded. They can buy their, you know, their own Mayfair. That, who can, you know, it, it, whereas 20 years ago, it's like, oh, it's a Muslim immigrant. Oh, so from suspicion to, yeah. bit, to bitterness, which is... Yeah, a bitterness, but it's a begrudging acceptance, but at the same time, appreciation. I'm sensing that twisty turn. That's the coolness now. You wear, again, you wear a thaw when you walk down off the street. No one will say anything. You could walk down there confident. Not a single eye would go down your way saying, what's he wearing? But 20 years ago, it would be a suspicious thing. You maybe wouldn't feel as comfortable wearing that. Even the, um, the abaya or the hijab outfit that you know Muslim women wear, again, that twenty years and I know, and I know and I, I can't speak for Muslim women and I know that Muslim women face their own a lot of challenges and, and so forth. But generally, you wear that around Oxford Street, it's almost like oh well, rich people from the Gulf are coming in shopping. They're wearing that, and they're walking into Selfridges, coming out. They got the Bentleys, they have got the Lambos, they have got the Ferraris. They got more money than you. So, yeah, you're in no position to say anything, mate, with your Primark shopping bag, Primark shopping bag and your JD trainers, if you know what I mean. Like, whereas 20 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe you'd get, and you're walking down a city centre somewhere, maybe you would get a so, few dirty looks. So this appreciation and understanding of, I guess, Muslim dress and what Muslims today look like, both because people have seen, you know, uh, I guess we're saying relatively rich foreigners coming coming here, spending, and kind of being a part of the, the fabric of London, a very international city. But I think also a lot of uh, London locals, there's yeah. their own uh, Muslim Muslim scene in London. There's that small shop in East London, behind Lo East London Mosque, a cave, I think cave, it's called. Yeah. I remember... Are we just giving people food for them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a cave, they owe us as well. Yeah, um, yeah. I remember they had a, a hat, I think it just said hub on it in Arabic. Yeah. And I remember Tom Hardy bought, uh, bought that, and he was wearing that to his, all his premieres. I'd be interested what, what inspired him to buy that. Apparently he's big on the uh, jiu-jitsu scene. Yeah, yeah. Now you said that, again, it's a London thing as well. Being Muslim or the Muslim attire, the Muslim dress is a London thing. And I think London, like football, um, sports, culture, dress, food, you know, the best food in London is halal cuisine. Of, And what I mean by that is halal food from all over the world, you know, Turkish, Somali food, South Asian food. You know. Good restaurants will always cater for it as well, won't they? There you are. You can go to the Dorchester and get halal food, halal food. wherever you want. Now, it's almost like there's an, I think it's almost like a begrudging for slash appreciative acceptance of Muslim culture as being something rather than an enemy, but an ally or, an ally or a partner. I find it's like a partner where you might not agree with everything they do, but you will do, you will trade together, you will deal together. That trade actually is manifested in kind of political levels. So you see like Muslim countries trading with the West at greater levels now than they used to. Muslim countries throwing their weight a bit more when it comes to issues like oil 
crises and so forth. And to some extent, the West appreciating and understanding a bit more now. So, for example, with uh, the Ukraine-Russia crisis, uh, Saudi Arabia has become an even more important ally because of the, their kind of, uh, you know, control over the oil supply and their role in OPEC and, and so forth. So you see a lot more kind of softening by the Western countries towards Muslim, Muslim nations, even South Asian countries like Bangladesh, for example, which is becoming an even greater uh, kind of export-import ally with Western nations. Um, you have uh, other nations, such as Pakistan, which have grown greater ties with China and Russia in recent times in terms of trade. It doesn't have to be with the West. It could be also with China, whatever side of the, of the fence you're on. The West or the East. Yeah. I think it comes back to, though, it very much seems to be Muslim nations, Muslim superstars, but how much of that is actually Islamic? Like what we're saying, the basis for these, you know, good trade negotiations and good political ties just happens to be with Muslim countries. And so it's good that Muslim countries aren't being as ostracized potentially and they're mm. still open to trade and political alliances. But there's nothing around that which is based on an Islamic understanding. There's no sort of there's no for example any theological solidarity mm. like there's no example of you know western countries saying that you know we're you know the u.s for example in god we trust printed on every bill there's no you know hand in hand with perhaps muslim countries yeah. saying well we're all monotheists we're all people of the book it's quite strictly a, a trade agreement mm. a capitalist agreement it's not not a theological alliance there is it and yeah. i think that gets back to what i was saying earlier like a lot of this muslim culture comes down to the culture of Muslims, as opposed to being informed by any Islamic or theological understanding. Mm. And, and this is a question which I would ask and not answer. I almost feel like, and, and this is not to say no, but is a, does there need to be one, if you know what I mean? And this is an interesting one. Sometimes, are, are, we, are we looking for the wrong thing for the right reason? And it's almost like, uh, is like a, a mono-Islamic kind of notion or unity or intra-Islamic unity. Was it ever there? Or, you know, or do we... And this is something which I've thought about a long time and I thought, do we uh, romanticise or nostalgize the notion of an intra-Islamic unity when maybe it was always just different Muslim empires just coexisting or having trade? Was it ever, I mean, I'm not talking about, for example, the first few generations and so forth. Of course, we're not going into that. I'm saying just generally Muslim nations, even empires that came later time. What was the real dynamic? Was it an Islam no, Muslim? Was there ever a unified Ummah? Was there ever one? That's a good point. Is it, is it something to look, of course, of course, unity has its, has its beauty. Is it something we should look for? And that's kind of a question I've had. And even when you look at just studying kind of modern Middle Eastern history or modern kind of um, modern history over the... Uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you had, for example, the rise of Arab nationalism, you know, in the uh, 60s and 70s, where you had greater inter-Arab cooperation on things, and that culminated in certain wars, say, with the Israelis and so forth. Arab nationalism seemingly, uh, to some extent, failed, uh, but of course, I think it didn't fail, it just kind of remodeled. Um, then you had things such as pan-Islamism, or the idea that is Islamic nations should cooperate, and in pan-Islamism, I think in the 80s, maybe 70s, you had more, uh, you know, you know, um, you know, had great the organization, OIC, you know, it's, it, Organization of Islamic Countries, Islamic Nations, mm -hmm. uh, more 
uh, trade cooperation and theological kind of understanding to some extent with say the Saudi with the Saudi Arabians with the other Middle Eastern countries and with South Asian nations and that often led to trade like a lot of uh, migrant workers moved to the Gulf um, that also led to a lot of investment from the Arab countries to the South Asian countries and Muslim countries for example madrasas you know we talk about you know we all talk about oh Saudi Arabia funded billions in making madrasas and mosques and initiatives that also came that way so I think to that level in the 80s to that level there was more of somewhat a theological forward slash trade alliance how, how far did it get how far did it get and is it happening now and that's another question which i've had like if we look back is this happening now so your, your first question was has it ever been there historically yeah. well, that's a think? good question i don't know but i think it is there for us as this idea of one ummah you know we're one ummah that bleeds together we're like one body if one part of the ummah is hurting uh, so is the rest of the ummah mm. and we feel for one another and we have that shared understanding is it something we've had in the past? We don't know, but it's still, I think, always something for us to aspire towards and aim towards, strive towards, even if it hasn't existed in the past. And is that achievable? I think mm. whether it's achievable or not, I think it's good that people aimed for it before. We had things like you mentioned, the OIC, but you have to think like how effective have they really been? Like how much do we actually see mm. an idea of unity? Like where do we see ideas of unity? Obviously the United States is kind of extreme example, but you have something like the EU, where you genuinely have a lot of different countries coming together with free borders to benefit each other. Um, are there any other good examples you can think That's of? That's actually fascinating. Now you mentioned the EU as being an example of a project, well, some would say failed project, and some, obviously, it depends on what side of the coin you're on. Are you, in Bre you, know, are you Brexiteer or Remainer or whatever? Um, the United States is a economic, undoubtedly economic, econ an economic success. Um, but the US, I guess, is quite different. I guess they can yeah. define themselves as a nation and it's a exactly. country and it's just, uh, and with states you know, forming it with, uh, you know, same language, generally the dominant language, English. Um, it was not in Europe, obviously. Think about the EU, like what, 80 years ago? Yeah. Like half those countries were at war with each other. There you are, right? A brutal like, world war with each other. Yeah. And now to think there's actually pretty decent collaboration and unity there. Does the OIC, do Muslims country across the world have anything even close to that? That no. level of genuine sense of Muslim unity across borders? I, I, I don't, it's interesting. I, so I don't, I don't think they do, um, or, but they do in certain areas. So I think there's a lot of parity when it comes to the, a lot of the Muslim nations. They have a mutual recognition of certain things that they allow you to do. So, for example, uh, when it comes to Eid, the celebrations of Eid being a national holiday, uh, when it comes to you know attending mosques, you know the government will, to some extent, help the funding of mosques or will assist in it. Um, when it comes to things such as um, uh, Islamic banking or allowing Islamic banking facilities, although it's questionable what that means, uh, you know, without going into that, um, there's issues. Sorry, there's issues such as um, um, halal food being available everywhere. So. Generally, there is a parity of, of, of practice, but whether that's from a joint mutual collaboration, I, I, would, I don't think it is, as you said. And the second point I'd say is there's a lot of intra-Muslim trade. So, for example, Turkey has become an even greater trade ally um, as a result of the Erdogan, as, as, you know, in the Erdogan era with a lot of the Muslim nations. Um, so, interesting, his, 
his Islamic rhetoric, political rhetoric, in, term, in terms of him being seen as someone who speaks out for Muslim issues, Palestine and uh, seemingly as well as just general issues affecting the Muslim world, has actually translated into a lot of economic success by him trading with a lot more Muslim countries. But at the same time, there's also a issue where there are political events where there is division. So an, an example would be, we just mentioned earlier on, are they more with China and Russia or are they more with the West, the US? So there's that kind of division. So the Saudi side of things um, would be more with the, you know, allied with the West. But Qatar, who we've, given a, who we've talked about, was actually seen as quite a pariah state. And it still is in, in some respects, but it was seen as quite a pariah state about five, ten years ago with all the blockades and the conflicts. Qatar was seen to be, you know, in alliance with Iran and Russia, and for example. So there is so much, um, and Turkey. So there's so much kind of um, political, kind of, how do I say, um, intermingling and division as well. Yeah, because you would never see, for example, Germany decide to blockade Spain. No. Yeah. Not, not in the modern era, under the EU at least. Do you think it's something we should move towards? And I think what you're mentioning is fascinating because... Do you, are you saying that you see immense potential or even greater potential if there is more pan-Islamic unity? I think that's kind of the the vision and the and the hope, the ideal state of the OIC and these sort of institutions. But actually realizing that, I don't think has ever been achieved. And I think realistically, are the member states actually bought into that vision mm. or do they want to be on top? Like I think the whole idea of the Arab nationalism kind of comes out of an anti-Islamic rhetoric mm. that actually we are we are this Arab. yeah this the nationality the nationality is more important in some ways than the shared Islamic identity which in many ways is kind of one of the reasons for the Ottoman Empire falling this idea of actually having an empire having a united Muslim front is is more important than having actually we're true to our, our roots our ethnic roots here so I think culturally again it comes comes down to this muslim identity and people want to identify on their sort of countries or their nationality as opposed to perhaps a theological understanding of how i'm muslim he's a muslim we need to support protect one another like how many you know muslim countries are helping with the refugee crisis or are they perhaps causing the refugee crisis so it's a, a tragic situation in many aspects uh, on the political landscape uh, coming back to the cultural landscape however we see muslims more and more like visibly open muslims in the uh in the cultural space, we mentioned business leaders, politicians. Uh, I think business kind of ties in to what we said earlier about wealth. Yeah. Politicians, we've talked about at length. But what about the cultural landscape? We have, we have film, we have music, television, writing. Um, what, what else would fit under culture? You've got artists. I, artists, uh, yeah. Um, cuisine, food. Uh, we mentioned dress. I think those actually um i say lifestyle okay what's and what is lifestyle what is lifestyle so i actually find now that the islamic there is now a carve out especially through social media where people have created subgenres themselves there's a carve out for an islamic lifestyle that is forming and it's becoming more and more persuasive you know how on social media on YouTube we hear things like mindfulness and being stoic, stoicism or 
you know, practicing stoicism, practicing mindfulness, you know, all this stuff. This kind of intersect between kind of spirituality and uh, you know existentialism and a way of being and lifestyle and fitness and uh, discipline and productivity and routine or having a routine or a, or a that kind of subgenre or genre itself um, has become like I think in the West especially a big thing. People are looking for ways of life. It's almost become a religion itself. You know that kind of oh, productivity. Of lifestyle thing. It's almost like people watch this religiously and try and find out a way in which they can mold and shape their lives. Similarly, I think there is a growing alternative that Islam is giving. For example, the regimentation of day through prayer and prayer being a form of mindfulness. You see lots of Muslims now openly in their content taking breaks for prayer, for example, and then going back to whatever they're doing. Or I, I kind of I was watching some video where I kind of um. And, you know, Islamic fitness or training type content where they they'll they'll break for prayer and then it's kind of it's like a like a like, like a warrior meditating before he goes back to battle. You know, it's almost a, a sense of you know it gives a, an aura of uh, you know spiritual you know kind of power and nobility, right? It's like almost like a, a Jedi or a samurai kind of way of being. But anyway, so you see that you see diet, you see the whole uh, you know how intermittent fasting is seen as cool. You've got the Muslim way of being, the fasting, fasting detoxifying you of, of all the bad stuff in your bodies and creating discipline and things like that. There's also um, things such as the Islamic way of being, discipline, uh, routine, not wasting your time. You know, these things are all becoming, well, productivity in other words, are being associated with, 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 with Muslims more now. And I think you're seeing that more and more. And because it's associated with productivity and economic activity, it's become more and more accepted by everybody. Rather than it being done for the sake of it being done, it's almost like I'm, I, I, I'm working, I'm doing a trade, I'm doing this, but at the same time I take time out for prayer. If you know what I mean? It's seen like that as opposed to, oh, here's me doing zikr for five hours nonstop. You see what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm seeing more of that. I think that's a really good point, and that is very Islamic in its outlook, yeah. as opposed to just some external monikers of Muslimness. I think that's a good example. Like you said, someone taking a break in prayer, and it kind of comes down to this whole breaking down of, of values. People looking for for purpose and peace, and Muslims have kind of had this constant uh, theological understanding of this throughout time. And now as other sort of lifestyles and way of living have slowly been broken down or have tried to adapt for the times, Muslims have not necessarily done yeah. that, where they've said, no, just because you're busy, you still need to pray five times a day. Yeah. Uh, you know, just because it's harder to find halal meat, you still should eat halal meat. Uh, just because everyone else is drinking doesn't mean now you can drink. Oh, and yeah. so, you know, our lifestyle has remained constant, tried, tested, obviously, from a sociological point of view, we know that, but also from... A theological point of view, we know that you know Allah has perfected for us our religion. Actually, you know the human condition hasn't changed much over over the years. Now we have our, our fancy iPhones, our good cars, our transport system, our air conditioning, but people still want the same things they wanted you know, a thousand, two thousand years ago. People still have their innate tendencies. People still want family. They still want acceptance. They still need food. They still need shelter. People ultimately, you know, what does your iPhone do? It just enables things you are already doing more efficiently. Mm. Communication 
you know, keeping memories, uh, storytelling, mm. connection, looking up information. It's all things that were possible uh, before, but at a much faster scale. But it hasn't fundamentally changed the human condition. Yeah. And ultimately, Islam is there to address that, to uh, answer some of the questions of the human condition, make us make us the best possible versions of ourself. And as other ideologies are breaking down and people are now looking for meaning, they're like, actually, this halal tayyab lifestyle, mm. it works well. Or, you know, Islam embraces... Uh, veganism or something yeah. I can actually be a vegetarian I can do clean eating as a Muslim and other things like you said prayer breaks mindfulness uh, physical activity like you know the hadith that the strong believer is better than the weak believer we believe, yeah. we're encouraged in all these aspects oh that's absolutely amazing I mean just as you mentioned say and for example you know t- being, t- being teetotal is cool now you know what I mean? Tito, I, yeah. did you say? Yeah, I what's don't a drink. Te- what's a Tito? Yeah, like someone who doesn't drink alcohol. There so, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I don't drink. Oh, well, that's really good for you. You know, if you notice that. Exactly. Oh, oh, I don't drink. Oh, yeah, because, you know, I'm, I'm dry. I mean, I don't drink. It's for my health. The or calories. High, the calories. And I don't want to go into that lifestyle. I want to be, you know, clear and blah, blah, blah. Oh, I don't drink. Why? Because I'm a Muslim. You know, before that was like, oh, you're not one of the boys. You're not one of the lads. But now I think it's, I think, it, we're at that starting phase where it will become more respect. You know, you know, you you, you know, you don't in, you don't need to engage in alcohol. You maintain a discipline and a self-respect for your body that you would not let something that could lead to toxic toxicity or harm or whatever enter you. So, okay, cool. I mean, halal meat, for example, um, as a as a marker of you know my diet is a, you know a sacred thing, and you know I I, I would eat, for example, meat which is not halal. I think it's becoming more, as you said, more and more accepted, and without it being without being cynical, I think it's becoming a global thing as well. Like we already mentioned, people are saying vegan. I'm vegan is an identity thing now. Um, I'm an environmentalist is an identity thing now. People cling on to these uh, ways of being or activisms as a way of, you know, make you know making themselves feel distinct from others. But I think with Islam, it's kind of interfused into the way of being. It's not, I don't think, I don't think Muslims are necessarily saying, I'm a Muslim and I don't drink. It's just almost like it's just part of their being. Like a very natural way natural of being. Natural way of being without kind of being chip on your shoulder and, you know, the shoving it down your throat kind of thing. Yeah. I'm seeing that more now. I don't know if you... To being Muslim without necessarily trying, doing it for the sake of identity. Yeah, policies. yeah, 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 yeah. Without saying, I'm Muslim, if you know what I mean, right? There's this natural... I'm a Muslim and you might not be or so what but this is how I am this is how I be this is the discipline I conduct myself with you will get to know that from it's almost like it's funny enough you know when they say you know a Muslim through his manners and his good deeds and his conduct and his etiquette that's how you know one not him saying I am a Muslim here's dawah you know I think the best dawah is conduct and you know uh, etiquette and manners I've you know I think that comes back it's almost the the opposite of the external monitors Monica's doing things for yourself so you're doing things to perfect your own character to yeah. draw closer to Allah I think other people will naturally see that and notice someone who's at peace with themselves and I think that's the best way to draw close to Allah yeah. there was one that's actually amazing I mean when you think of um, at work um, at work we're encouraged to meditate 
um, we're encouraged to take breaks, practice yoga, think about mindfulness, uh, do things for your mental health and well-being. And it's seen as quite respectable and admired now, especially post-pandemic, where we're in an era where mental health and well-being and sustainable work, sustainable everything, sustainable life is valued. I think Islam and the values that Islam supports is, I think, is going to be more and more respected. So, for example, if you were to say to a lot of people, saying, you know, as Muslims, we value family life, for example. And I think that's one thing which is globally there in the Muslim world, the family life, the belief in the family unit. Um, I think that's something which people would respect more. So, you say, I'm a Muslim, we believe in family life, we believe in the institution of marriage, and having children, and having a family, and providing for others, uh, and sharing, kind of, or contributing um, wealth, and assets, and, 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 and uh, knowledge with family, with others, your community, your, your surroundings. It's a Muslim thing. I think anybody, if it's articulated in a way which is successful, um, and with prosperity, would respect that. For example, and I think these are some things where Islam is becoming cool and will become even more cool. If you finally look at people who are very, very wealthy in corporate positions, say who are you know law firm partners or CEOs, they've got family. They're often they leave uh, they, to some extent. I'm not saying they leave early and they chill out, but they've got family. They've got big family homes, big family mansions. They've got kids. They've got you know they're often work life balance work -life is important balance to them. Important to them, whereas it's the kind of lower level bottom rung and you're working up the ladder then you know oh, i'm just going to work i don't need family i'm just going to i'm going to get drunk all night the ones at the very very top i mean there are exceptions and so forth i'm not going to just say oh everybody i'm not here for the exception i'm just giving a general position they maintain their family life and a discipline um they work hard to build their they family work hard life. to build their family life and i've actually spoken to some colleagues and they've said something like when you have a family and you have others to look after you realize it's not just me. So if your X amount of salary was doing it for you, you know, wasting money on food and clothes and whatever, when there's someone, when there's another mouth to feed, or maybe a couple more, and there's more expenses, even things like nursery or schools, you realize this ain't gonna cut it. So it pushes you into a position where you need to work harder to help provide. And I think that's a quite an Islamic way of being um, you know, I'm not sure, like, sort of, uh, someone as caretake, caretaker of the family, providing yeah. for the family, yeah. looking after your your dependents, and yeah, not not having any aspects of selfishness. I guess that's quite quite natural, though. I think a lot of people would accept that, but with, with Muslims, it's always been there. And that's something which I think is, especially if you're young and you speak like that, I think gives a level of maturity and groundedness, which I think kind of will startle a lot of non-Muslims in a good way. If you are young and single and, you know, can articulate an ambition that, no, I want to progress in my career, but I want a family and I want to look after others and I want to, uh, you know, bear my obligations that I have been given as, as in my religion and my culture uh, to, to, to kind of support other people. I think people will respect that and be taken aback. And I think it's an amazing da'wah as well. Um, for example, I was told that, you're provided for by Vizik or God, not because of you. It's because you have duties over others and others have rights upon you. You've been given a burden and God understands that and he will make it easy for you. You know, so marriage, yeah. you know, everyone says marriage cr creates Rizik. 
you know, because through marriage, obviously, Mikhail, you'll, you'll tell me, you know, someone else has been entrusted to you and you've been given that authority. And I think there's, I, I think there's a hadith, or it's an ayah or a hadith, I'm not sure, but kind of God strives to make it, to make it easy to help, to make sure the rizik is there for you to provide and do your obligations to others. The risk comes with the marriage. With the marriage, not whereas we think, oh, you chase, chase the job, chase the dream, chase the position, and then you'll get married. You know yeah, I mean? people think that marriage will be, bring more of a burden, or it could be quite the opposite. It's the opposite. Well, Allah tells us that, yeah. Now, what would you share? Uh, now, I know we're not, not speaking about marriage, or is it, but what, do you, what insights would you have on that kind of physic and this kind of coolness and this discipline and that kind of value system? That's a really big question. Um, does ma- I think, like you said, um, I think it depends as well on your own personal growth and your understanding of risk and challenges and how worried should a Muslim ever be about about their risk, about whether they can pay their bills or if they have enough to feed you know, themselves and someone else. And it kind of comes back to this idea that you know, a true Muslim is, is like the bird that goes out in the morning. Mm. It doesn't know where it's going to find its food, but it knows it will find food that day. Or like a cat. A cat. Yeah. So there at, we go. At night, Animal. wandering around like Batman. There we go. Finding right. food behind the dumpsters. Behind the dumpsters. Yeah, the animals have this sort of intrinsic nature. They're worshipping Allah always, and they know he will provide for them. And if you look at the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, they said they rarely had food in the house, for, you know, enough for more than a few days. Or they didn't eat more than two meals a day, except that one would be of only dates. So it's very ascetic life, but also understanding that, well, we don't need to stockpile dates. Because when we run out, like Allah will provide. And I think that's what we, we find nowadays. Like you don't necessarily need to have everything right now. But when you need it, Allah will provide it for you. Mm. And often, kind of my parents always say, and I'm sure a lot of people say, it's more of a grandma thing, grand, granddad thing, but it's the kind of, we had nothing, and then we had everything. But it came, Rizik came with, with, the, with the fear of, when I mean fear, it's the understanding. With anxiety, Rizik came. You know, the idea that, oh my God, we've got kids now, what are we going to do? And then God gave. So, and I think this is actually said in, um, in the Quran, you know, do not kill your children for fear of want, you know, for fear of need. And I think a lot of, I think there's been lots of interpretation of that. I think one of them was, you know, the, the, the female infanticide or childbirth. A lot of people say this is uh, anti kind of abortion. A lot of people say this is uh, anti kind of family planning or contraception to some extent. but uh, lots of interpretations, but the point being is that for fear of want, you know, the idea that God is there to provide Arazik, the sustainer. Again, we've been talking about prosperity and success, which is a good thing, because ultimately, if it leads to, you know, the idea of, oh, oh God, give me wealth. Yeah, but what would you do with the money? You know, that kind of thing. It could oh, be more of a test for you. It could be more of a test for you. Oh, because so I can provide for my family, I can provide for my children, I can provide for my, for my you know, look after my you know, wife because she has, you know, whatever. Uh, uh, you know, rights upon me, and, and I've heard, and, and this is one thing which I want to critique, but in a positive way. I've heard marriage shouldn't just be about rights, and I agree. Uh, marriage should not be just about uh, a legal contract. I agree. Um, but what I was talking about, and I think this is something which gets over underplayed as well. I think Islam is a religion which has a sophisticated legal code. You know, we talk about rights and obligations, and we talk about inheritance. You know, the laws of inheritance. It's Deeply, deeply complex, and it's highly structured. I think the Jewish tradition is also very structured, and the Islamic tradition very structured. 
so and, and it's all to do with family community and social ties and social bonds the islamic code you know everything you know the whole idea of you know who you know your marriage um you know obligations or rights upon here here if you look at the whole kind of a lot of the hadith literature it's all about you know what rights does your mother have over you what rights does your father have over you what do you have over them what duties do you have to them even your neighbor has a right over you even the shopkeeper down your road has a right over you, and I didn't know that. And I said, would you? Well, the shopkeeper has a social right in the Sharia, it's not a legal right, for your money. So then he can sell you things, so he can survive. You know, there's an inter-network of ummah, or community. And the right to a, to a fair deal, but fair you don't deal. go try and, you know, haggle him too much and yeah. rip him off either. Fair market practice, right? And mm -hmm. the haggle thing, and also he shouldn't be ripping you off. So yeah. these are all rights, um, legal, forward slash, social, moral rights. Um, that I think cultivate a good society um, or a good civilization or a good dignified civilization. So I think these are things which are cool in Islam, if you know, or becoming more cool. You know, we talk about where we are right now and uh, the market and uh, you know the lack of community, which we all complain about. You know, socially, there's no community. No one looks after anyone. No one says hi to their neighbors. Islam is the opposite. Yeah, well, I think all this like devolution of values, everything's mm. being rethought from the ground up now, and Islam has the answer to all those questions like leading an Islamic lifestyle at the at the bare minimum you have the the rights that you need to follow to provide and you know, provide emotional support yeah. as well as just sustenance to your family your friends your neighbors your shopkeepers as you said and that is like the very bare minimum but for a good Muslim really aiming to live their, their best life trying to draw close to Allah they should aim for much more than that actually what is known as what is the least I need to give to this person what is the most I can bear to give to this person? Mm. What is in my ability to really to really be excellent? And I think that's what makes Islamic culture, from an Islamic sense of view, not just a Muslimness sense of view, but this Islamic idea of well, how can I live in service to others, doing good to others? And I think that's really uh, an answer to big questions of our age. Here we go. I love your jacket, Michelle. Thank you, thank you. So, uh, yeah, we were thinking of doing fit checks. Uh, fit given, check, given gosh. Kind of the, the different types of uh, clothing we wear each, each week. So, fit check for me. Um, I'd say jacket is a, well, it's a, a double-breasted blazer, a navy hop sack material. Uh, um, I think it, well, it's from... Which material was that? Hop sack. I don't know that. Okay, very nice. Yeah, um, so it's a, it's a type of wool. Uh, I think a thinner wool, I think, for... Summer. Perfect for summer. Some people call it basket weave, so it's just kind of, kind of almost like knitted wool. Um, but it's a bit cotton. It feels like cotton, but it's meant to be wool, but um, or a type of wool. So that's the blazer. Um, I got this uh, on sale on Outlook from Reese, so it's a nice one. Shirts also from uh, from Reese. Um, that's a no normal white shirt. Uh, I go, I go for the cutaway collars because I like okay. the collars to be kind of um, angled. Oh, right, that's sort um, of cutaway, yeah, okay. Uh, vertically, as opposed to kind of. Yeah. Why do you, Why do you like that? Um, I think it is. It's a lawyer thing. It could be an idea, but I think wide, <laughs> wide, wider, um, wider collars or kind of collars that angle out. I think frame the shoulders and the okay. the, the kind of the neck better, mm -hmm. rather than collars which are quite stiff and um, mm -hmm. kind of uh, you know you know yeah you know straight down. Yeah. Um, I have one like that, but for some reason it always just kind of flaps down. Oh and yeah. It just looks a bit yeah a bit exactly. Tragic. Okay, that's what I was saying. So with the collars which kind of angle out a bit more. They they stay stiff. I mean, okay. you put the things in, and yeah. then they're kind of more more in position. 
Uh, chinos or trousers are just from uh, Hackett, so just again, another kind of just from the outlet. And that's it really. So I don't, I don't like to, I don't, I don't like to spend a lot on clothes, but I do try to from outlets and get get good stuff. Yeah, and like I say. like I like your your outfit. So you tell me, what's your outfit today? This this shirt is uh, horrendously old. I think this is probably over ten years old now, coming up to our ten so year what's anniversary. The what's the story? Um, I decided red, which was a color I liked, and and here we are. Here we are. And here we are. This is still going strong. Uh, yeah, I think that's it for me. Uni Uniqlo red. all the way down. Uniqlo, and I think the material is a bit, um, is it cord? Corduary? Yeah, the, the material is corduroy, so it's getting very hot in this heat. But I will survive. Trousers, can't remember where from, but you know, some nice beige trousers for summer. Yeah. And my socks are probably not in shot, but uh, they are, they've seen better days, let's put it that way. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And the hat? The hat is from Shukur, so yeah. it's a um, Jordanian company. I but think. Why are we giving like brands free publicity? Honestly, I mean, it's okay. We'll invoice. We're going to invoice yeah, Reese yeah, and yeah. Shukra after this. Although Shukra, I think I first heard of them when they were sponsoring our Oxford ISOC newsletter. Yeah. So every week there's a little Shukra thing at the bottom. Yeah. And I remember I think at one point I was writing the newsletter, so I copy pasted mm. the whole template, including the little Shukra advert at the bottom. Did you get a free hat? Oh, Did I get a free hat? I, no, quite the opposite. Someone from the ISOC messaged me saying, "Please stop advertising them on our newsletter." They stopped paying us like that, that sponsorship has ended so uh that's me i've been giving free advertising for shukra since since the day send him hats send him merch send him good stuff please thank you